0: Thank you, worship team. Worship team on a whole nother level this morning. That was unbelievable, lifting up those songs. And it is in the spirit of that song, Desperate Soul, written by our very own worship pastor, Matt Cole, by the way, incredible words, that I want us to approach the sermon that we're about to hear. Christianity is about dependency. It's about humility. It's about our need for God. God. And that is not something that God increasingly wants you to run from and become more self-sufficient. God wants you to continue to press into your own need for him and your own desperation that just continues the further you get along in your journey. I believe God's moved every week in this Philippians series, and it's been amazing to watch a letter that was actually written in a prison cell. If you don't know anything about the New Testament of the Bible, the Apostle Paul founded most of the churches that went out into the modern world, specifically in the Greco-Roman world. And there's a church in a city called Philippi that he founded by accident. 10 years later, Paul is in prison in Rome, which is a little far away from Philippi. Philippi was in an area called Macedonia, Greece, but it had been conquered by the Roman Empire. So it was a Roman city. Paul's in the capital city of Rome writing to this church that he helped found. He founded himself, actually. And he's writing with overflowing joy. One of the things I want you to get out of Philippians is that your circumstances don't have to be ideal for your joy to be overflowing. You can have overflowing joy in the midst of circumstances that you would trade away, in the midst of situations that you would love to change, and in the midst of relationships that aren't exactly the way you would want them to be at a given moment. And so Paul writes this letter for the purpose of reminding them that even though he is imprisoned, it's not keeping the gospel from going out. There was a rumor going around in the church at Philippi that, yeah, Paul's awesome and we love him, but he's our main missionary and we send him a lot of money. We're about to send him more money, but how can he be carrying the gospel to Rome if he's imprisoned in Rome? And that's why in Philippians chapter one, Paul's like, no, 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 no. The fact that I'm in prison is only furthering the mission because the gospel's going out throughout the whole palace guard. I'm getting to talk to a lot of influential people and the church in Rome's doing better because now they're not relying on me, but they're learning how to do it themselves. It's actually amazing. And he tells them over and over and over again that whether I live or die, I'm happy. To live as Christ, to die is gain. And actually to die and be with him would be better by far. And then on top of that, he says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. If you need like an overarching theme of Philippians, it is that. Paul wants them to live a life worthy of the gospel, whether he lives or whether he dies, whether people in their community live or die, whether they're persecuted or freed up, no matter what, live a life worthy of the gospel. And if you weren't here last week, highly encourage you to listen to that one on the podcast because it will make sense out of why so many Christians at ACC are weird. We're a super weird church. You look at people, look around while you worship, look around at people giving their money away to this church that doesn't have a building yet. You look around at the way people pray, at the way people live their lives, and you go, this is a little bit strange. These people are really passionate about This whole Jesus thing, and what we saw last week in Worthy of the Gospel is a lot of the world tries to make sense out of faith and religion by saying, you should live a balanced life, like you should live a life that, you know, faith is a part of it, but don't go all radical, don't be one of those crazies, like don't don't do that. What we're doing is we're looking at the actual story of Jesus and asking the question, what would be a lifestyle worthy of this story actually being true? Like if you actually believed that Jesus is who he says he is, that he came down from heaven, that he died in your place, that he rose from the dead, what might a natural response to those facts look like? That's a life worthy of the gospel. You know what a life unworthy of the gospel looks like? A half-hearted, sometimes attending church, one foot in, one foot out version of Christianity that looks a lot like hypocrisy. You know it does make sense? A life of radical generosity, a life of crazy worship, an overflowing life of joy that says, I don't have it all together, but my whole life has been captivated by Jesus. And if you're here and you're like, I'm not there yet. I know that there are people all around me that are there, but I'm not there yet. I believe Jesus is wooing you. I believe he's slowly showing you that he is better by far, that he is worth losing everything for. But don't I would say don't rush the process to feel like you have to be where somebody else is emotionally. Let God do that on his own time, but don't look at the people around you who worship the way they do and pray the way they do and live the way they do like they're weird. It's not weird. It makes sense. What is weird is somebody who believes this stuff and doesn't respond like they believe it. So the whole theme worthy of the gospel, that's the hinge point of Philippians. Now, the rest of it, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, is all about, practically speaking, what does it mean to live a life worthy of the gospel? So the next couple of messages are going to be in your face. They're going to be convicting. They're going to have you like, oh, yeah, that's, that's different. Um, <laughs> it, 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 I, what I'm saying is this is going to affect your Monday. This is really going to mess with stuff that you have going on right now, but I think it's going to hurt so Good, if you have your Bible, hold it up all over this place. Hold it up, hold it up, hold it up, hold it up. Oh my gosh, so many people going to heaven. I just, wow. Philippians chapter two, Philippians chapter two. Paul's gonna flesh out what a life worthy of the gospel means, specifically in the context of our relationships with one another. Philippians two is one of the most famous passages in the Bible about the humanity and the divinity of Jesus. And I'm going to read it all the way through, and it's going to be a lot. There's going to be moments where you might want to go, ouch. There's going to be moments where you might want to go, yes, praise God. Feel free to respond however you see fit. But we're in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. If you're there, say, I'm there. Here we go. Therefore, whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, look at what was said previously. What was said previously, live worthy of the gospel. Therefore, in light of what I just said, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. That's good, right? Doesn't hurt at all. Verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh my, wow. What a section of scripture. This is powerful. And if you were reading Philippians 2, specifically if you have your physical Bible in front of you, I want you to look at how the structure changes of how the words are laid out. You see how it's spaced out differently than the rest of it? Whenever you see that in the Bible, it means it's not the writer's original words. They're quoting it from another. So what Paul is doing is he's using a popular hymn or song that was said 2,000 years ago to illustrate his point. So Paul did not make up that section in Philippians 2. We actually don't really know who did. We don't know where this song or poem came from, but we know they said it a lot in the early church. And even though there's some amazingly dramatic statements made about Jesus in Philippians 2, it's not necessarily about explaining to people that Jesus came down from heaven and served people and lived a humble life and then was exalted in glory, name above all names, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Have you ever heard that before? This is where that came from. But it wasn't written as a theological statement to teach a fact. It was written as a relational statement to teach us how we should go about our relationships with one another. It said in verse five, "Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus in your interactions with one another," and that is why this installment of our Philippians series is going to be titled. You ready for this? In your relationships, in. Your relationships, I told you, I told you it was going to affect your Monday. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to find somebody who's sitting around you, who you're close to, who you see a lot during the week. If you have that person around you, and I want you to look at them and say, this sermon is about us. This sermon is about us. It's about us. This sermon is about us. Now, now, this is going to be great. I want you to look at somebody around you who maybe you just met during community time. You don't really know them that well. Maybe you guys are kind of acquaintances. You came to church together. You don't really know each other that well. And legitimately, I want everyone to do this. I want you to look at them and say, this sermon is not about us. This sermon is not about us. It's not. It's not. You don't have to be ashamed of that. It's not. It's not about us. I would say Paul writes this section to specifically address relationships that are continual and consistent in our lives how we should go about relationships with the people who know us best and who we know best. So this is going to speak to you and the people around you who you do life with in close community. And if we go back up to that first section of verses, I want to show you this. Paul makes all these appeals. He says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any sharing in, in the Holy Spirit, if you have any tenderness or compassion toward me. He's basically reaching and grabbing all these obvious things that everybody in the room is gonna go, yep, I got a lot of that, I got a lot of that. How can you not be encouraged by being united with Christ? How can you not have tenderness and compassion on Paul who's in prison? How can you not be sharing in the one spirit if you're in a faith family and community like the church at Philippi? Everybody's kind of rolling with them. They're like, yep, yep, yep. What do you want, Paul? Get to the point, get to the point. What do you want, what do you want? Make my joy complete by being of one mind and of one spirit. Specifically, he's talking about the mind of Christ. And he says, this is what I mean. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Now, I know no one in this room struggles with this, but for people outside who might be listening to the podcast, I'm just going to speak to them for a second. Selfish ambition, that word in ancient Greek is the word for rivalry. It means going about your relationships with the people closest to you as a means to gain value for yourself by one-upping someone. Being better than, making more than, having more likes than, having a better, more successful outcome externally than them. I know, like I said, none of you struggle with that. And then, vain conceit. Vain conceit, that that pushes it a little further because what that collection of words means is it's kind of a double meaning. When you're happy because someone else is humiliated or you're unhappy because someone else has been exalted, that's vain conceit. So like when somebody has a fall of some sort and you kind of rally around them with like, oh, I feel so bad for you, but in reality you feel bad for them to the degree that it makes you feel great about yourself and you actually enjoy talking about them when you're not around them acting compassionate. And you remember, this is not you. Um, and you talk to other people like, oh, isn't that so sad what happened to so-and-so? And really there's a part of you that gets joy out of it because it bolsters you and it puts you in another position. That's vain conceit. It's also vain conceit when something great happens to somebody else and it makes you bitter. Even if you never say anything to anybody, it just bothers you that it went well for them. It bothers you that they've been blessed. It bothers you that he makes more than you. It bothers you that their life seems to be going so easily and yours has become so complicated. And Paul is speaking directly to that. And he says, instead of doing that, think the way Jesus thought about relationships. And to explain how Jesus thought about relationships, he gives us that song or that hymn. If you can put that second section of verses up there, essentially what this song does is walks you down the ladder of humility that Jesus walked down to do what he did. So Jesus being in very nature God, what does that mean? That means Jesus didn't become God after he rose from the dead. He's always been God. Nothing has been made without him. He was there in the beginning. He is the beginning. He is the Alpha. He is the Omega. Equal with God. But he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or used to his own advantage. In other words, when Jesus came down, in regards to his human life, he did not use his divinity as a means to gain anything relationally in this world. Rather, he made himself nothing. If you have ESV, it says he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. So watch this. The most humiliating act in the history of humanity, aside from the cross, was Christmas. And we always skip over Christmas and go straight to Easter and go look at Jesus on the cross. Let's look at him in the manger for a second. That's the son of God, eternal glory, right hand of God, humble, dependent baby boy coming down the ladder. And not only was he born being made in likeness of man, he took the form of a servant. So when Jesus was born, he wasn't born as a king. He wasn't born as someone who came into the world with wealth and power. He was born to the Jews who were enslaved to the Romans and not just to the Jews, but to a poor family that didn't even have a place to bring him into the world. He's humbling himself. And then not only did he come as a man and as a servant, he made himself obedient to the point of death. So it's not even that he came down from heaven just to live and be among us as a servant. He died, and he didn't just die at a ripe old age. He died in the prime of his life at 33, 34 years old. And not only did he die, he died on a Roman cross. There is no more humiliating way to die than rotting on a wooden cross, naked and bleeding out in front of everyone you know. The Romans designed it that way. It was their way of making a statement to the people they've conquered. We're in control, you're not, and we will humiliate you. And the Son of God has come down from heaven to be a man, to be a servant, to die, and die on a cross. You see what Paul's doing? He says, I want you to think like this in your relationships. Go down the ladder as far as you can possibly go. When you think you can't take one more step down, humble yourself again. Go down again, 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 which runs completely contrary to our world and our culture system of ascribing value. You do know that our world does the opposite. Our world says if you want value, if you want validation on the inside, try to climb as high as you can to earn that value comparatively. So Every person in the room, look up here, we have this in common, all ages in the room. We have in common an internal, I would say, a whole, a need, this area of our hearts that stays void. It's a void, and it demands value. It demands honor. It demands admiration. We all want to be esteemed relationally with other people, and our system for getting that esteem is climb the ladder, look better than look good enough, ascribe to me value on the basis of how I measure up against the people around me, and the higher I climb, the more value I will achieve. But here's the lie in that. The higher you climb, the more empty you become in the world system. So you got this internal need for value and validation and you're trying to climb and you're trying to prove and you're trying to post and social media is a great place to watch this unfold, by the way, because we literally have a digital world where millions of people are competing against each other to show how great their life is and show a highlight reel that isn't really actually reflective of how their life really is. It's just the version that they want you to see but they want you to validate it, they want you to like it, they want you to follow it, they want you to comment on it and they'll do everything they can to earn the approval of other people because they've got this internal need and void and that's not me hating on social media. I think too many times we talk about social media and we're like, look at how ridiculous this is. We're literally trying to put on a show for everyone around us. I wanna speak to that and go, oh, that's not ridiculous, it makes perfect sense. You got all these human beings who are desperate for validation, who need to be filled up from relationships with other people, and now you've got a medium to have instant feedback and instant ability to fill you up and tell you that you're good enough. It makes perfect sense that our generation has responded the way that we have. And don't act like, the younger generation are the only people doing this. And if you're on social media and the older generation, you know that it's happening. You know that you're comparing yourself against the people you went to high school with. And if you're in here and you're like, oh, well, I'm not even on social media. And so I don't even fall for that lie. Oh, okay, so you don't care about the fact that your brother makes more money than you? you oh, oh, you don't care about the fact that you make more money than him? Oh, you don't measure yourself comparatively on the basis of what you've achieved and what they've achieved. You don't look at the successes of another and think that you were more worthy. You don't look at the promotions of another and feel this void on the inside of you going, should have been me. You don't, oh, you really don't struggle with that at all. This is all of us. This is 80-year-old in the room, 18-year-old in the room, 12-year-old in the room. We all have this hole on the inside. And what what Paul is saying is, is that fullness doesn't come by climbing the ladder upward. It comes from an awareness of your fullness so that you have nothing to prove and all you do is climb downward. Do not skip this about Jesus. Jesus didn't start by humbling himself. He started by being the son of God in heaven. That's where it begins. In very nature, God. So in other words, The only reason why Jesus has the capacity to climb the ladder, climb down the ladder the way that he does, is because he's aware of how high of a position he has. He's so full that he has nothing to prove and nothing to earn and nothing to gain. The only way to go about relationships with other people that's realistic, that actually looks like this, is to think like Jesus. And if you're gonna think like Jesus, you don't start from a position of emptiness and thirst, you start from a position of fullness that can overflow. And the reason why you need the approval from everybody else and you're competing for the likes of everybody else is because you haven't actually taken the time to let the God of the universe fill you up on the inside and fill you up so much so that you no longer need it from them. Jesus didn't need the approval of this world because he had it from his father. That's why his ministry began with his baptism. And what happened at his baptism? His dad said, this is my son with whom I'm what? Well pleased. So, when you hear that from your heavenly father, you no longer have to earn it from them. You can give it to them because you've received it from him. And the reason why we're so thirsty, we're so hungry for approval, we want so badly for validation is because we don't realize that God's the one who put that void there. He just knows the only way to fill it is with himself. This is not something Satan and sin put on the inside of you. I need to be seen, I need to be admired. I think about why we, why we are doing so much of what we are doing, and even as I'm spanning the crowd, I'm looking into different seasons of life, and I'm like, oh, it's why you do this. It's why you dress like that. It's why you have done that today. It's why you posted that today. It's why you think like that. Like, like This is a problem, but it's a problem that doesn't stem from something that is sinful. It stems from something that is righteous. We want to be admired and esteemed and valued, and it's available, but it's available in the opposite direction. So I could sum up what I feel like God told me to say to Auburn Community Church today. It's this. Everybody look up here. Don't miss this. The value your soul desires from relationships will come in the opposite direction you are tempted to look for it. Say that again. The value your soul desires from relationships will come in the opposite direction you are tempted to look for it. You think you'll be valued and esteemed the higher you climb and the better you do. But this is teaching, that you'll be valued and honored and esteemed the lower you stoop down in humility. And that the lower you go, the more you have the capacity to be filled up by God again. Watch the progression. Jesus is with God, humbles himself again, 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 and that's the end of the story, right? The message, simple, be humble, sit down, Thank you, Kendrick. Like, oh, just be humble. That's what, that's what I heard growing up. Just, just stop making it about yourself. Be humble, be humble. Guys, that's, that's not the end of the story. It's Jesus in heaven, down the ladder, down the ladder, down the ladder. Fast forward, higher ladder than any ladder that ever existed. Watch the end of this passage. This cannot be skipped. These are the most powerful words in Philippians 2. Philippians 2. Therefore, in light of Jesus' humility, God did what? Exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Did you know that? Like everybody's going to bow, everybody's going to acknowledge, not just Christians, everybody. That's what under the earth means. That's another word for hell. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Don't skip this. The result of Jesus' humility is honor from his Father. So you start from a position of fullness. God loves me. He's honored me. You pour it out humbly in relationships with other people, and you know what God does? He gives you even more fullness from before. He doesn't just satisfy your soul. He overflows. And he blesses you because you're seeking first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you. But once you get focused on the things that get given to you, you miss out on the kingdom and his righteousness and you've limited your ability to be filled up. But when I'm set on him, I've got an internal fullness and I pour it out and I serve and I value others and then I'm exalted. And Jesus knew that. Jesus was not humble for humility's sake. He was humble for greatness's sake. So people love to go, Jesus didn't want to be great. He didn't want to make a name for himself. Yes, he did. You think Jesus wasn't driven by greatness? Jesus is the one who said, if you want to be great, you need to be a servant of all. You need to become like a little child. And people use that and they go, see, Jesus wasn't about being great. He wasn't about doing something awesome. That's not what he said. He didn't say, don't want to be great. He said, if you really want to be great, I'll show you how. It runs the complete opposite direction of what you're tempted to do, but it'll make you great. Service. Service humility. ACC, God wants you to do great things with your life. God wants your life to overflow with peace and provision and blessings and relationships. He wants to add all things to you as you seek first his kingdom. How do you do that? You serve. You make your life a living sacrifice for other people and God pours out blessing after blessing after blessing on your life. And that's when you realize that this narrative about Jesus from Philippians chapter two isn't limited to Philippians. This is the story of the entire Bible. There's a direct relationship in the Bible between humility and honor. What do I mean by that? I mean, this statement would basically summarize a thousand stories in the Bible. God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Like, if you took Genesis to Revelation, I know this is a weird illustration, but I feel like it worked at the 830. I'm gonna go for it again. If my Bible took the form of like, think like a dishcloth or a sponge, and literally we squeezed out every story's contents from the Bible. We just squeezed it and said, what would come out at the point where you go, let's take Genesis to Revelation. What is God doing again and again and again? I believe one of the main themes that would come out is that God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. God loves to bring down those who think that they are something. Loves it, does it repeatedly. Like somebody thinks that they're good, thinks that they're God, thinks that they're exalted, thinks that they got something together. He loves to bring them low and remind them, you're not God, you're not good, you're not eternal, you need me. I'm thinking of Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament who literally tried to build the Babylonian empire so wide that he, he conquered the people of God, he conquered the nation of Israel and then taunted them and eventually God makes him turn into a madman who literally drives himself crazy. The same man who wanted statues worshipped of him is the man who can't put one thought next to another. God humbled him. I think, about, I think about Caesar Augustus, who was leading the Roman Empire when Jesus was born. Did you know that? Like, while Jesus was born, there was a Caesar in power who literally, when he showed up to a new location, told his attendants to blow a trumpet and make an announcement that the Son of God had arrived. Caesar Augustus was the, the adopted son of Julius Caesar. I love history, by the way. I don't know if you can tell. And so his way of gaining power and and climbing that ladder was tell him that God's son is here. He was the Caesar who was in power when Jesus was born, the real son of God, as a Jewish slave in a manger somewhere. Watch God do this. That was 2,000 years ago. Fast forward to 2019. Jesus, that little Jewish baby, the name above all names. Caesar, that's the name of a salad and dressing. Dead serious. He does this. In fact, it's not just Jesus who he does it for. That's uh, yeah, that's free. It's not just Jesus, it's not just Jesus who he does it for y'all. King David, the eighth born of eight boys, wasn't even there when Samuel came to appoint a new king. He goes, "I'm going to take the last pick. I'll take David." God wanted to do a miracle through his people in a battle and he picked the least guy in the least tribe. That's Gideon, read Judges Over and over and over again, it's like God enjoys taking someone who thinks that there's something and going, sit down. And he enjoys taking someone who doesn't feel like they have a lot to offer, who knows how dependent and desperate they are, and who uses their life as a means to serve other people, not serve themselves. He loves to lift them up. And he loves to exalt them, and he loves to bless them, and he loves to make much of them. And when you start to understand this relationship, you'll start to understand your new motivation for your relationships should be service, not serving yourself. In 1 Peter, Peter says this so perfectly. I don't want you to turn there. I just want to show you how clear this is. He says, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. That's a quote from Proverbs. Remember what I said. This runs through the entire Bible. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may, what? Lift you up in due time. So why would you clothe yourself with humility toward other people? Well, because God told me to do it. Don't think the Sunday school answer is always the right answer. That's a bad answer. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. God wants his nature of exalting those who are humble to motivate you to go about your relationships differently. And it says, it says that he, under his mighty hand that he may lift you up. But when does he lift you up? Not just when you're humble before him, when you're humble before others. And at ACC, we've gotten really good at talking about desperation for God and dependency on God, and that's kind of easy to talk about because we know that there's no way to heaven outside of Jesus. We know that we're nothing without the cross. We know that we're desperate for him for our next breath. That one's easy. I can get humble before God, but when God calls you to take that humility to the next level and humble yourself before the people that you're tempted to compete with, ouch. But that's the difference between being exalted by God and being brought low by God. And so what I want to preach to our people today is what if, what if we were so internally full with the fullness that came from a relationship with Jesus that the overflow of our relationship with God became humbling ourselves in relationships with other people, so much so that all God did for your entire life is to continue to pour out more and more honor and more and more blessing on your life. Now, here's where I got I to add this in. Honor and blessing are up to God how he distributes those. He might distribute it here and now through certain resources and blessings or he might distribute it eternally. Do do you know who the most esteemed human beings in heaven are? Like those who are exalted the highest? This is what scripture says, martyrs. People who have literally given their life, like been murdered for their faith. Why would God do that? Humility and honor. If you're gonna humble yourself to the point of being burned alive for my kingdom, in my kingdom, I'm gonna exalt you the highest. God does not, I was about to say God's not a socialist, but I'll save that one from later. Um, God does not operate in heaven off of fairness. Everybody's equal, because they're in my kingdom. No, God's all about humility and honor. However much you are willing to serve and humble yourself, That's proportional to how much God is willing to bestow honor and value and goodness and blessing in your life. So if you want more of that from God, stop competing with them and start humbling yourself long enough to go, okay, how can I use my life as a means to serve other people? Because I got all that I need to get from God and I just want to pour it out. And then you know what God does in response to that? He pours it out on you. Is this helping anybody? I wanna show, show you how to do this. You were at the first service, so that, that totally, that stiffs my confidence because it's like I'm helping somebody who's heard it twice. All right, look at the person next to you. say humility, humility. This is about your relationships. I know this talk's intense, but it's about to get so helpful. You ready? I wanna show you how to live like this on Monday. Number one, I wanna show you how to cultivate humility daily. Cultivate humility daily. If you miss anything about this talk, don't let it be point number one. I felt strongly all week that this is the most important thing I will say in my sermon. Humility comes natural to no one. Pride comes natural to everyone. And pride does not just mean arrogance. It includes insecurity as well. Pride is just the ability to look at yourself more than you look at God. So we love to go, oh, he's prideful, she's prideful because they're all about themselves. Well, they might be arrogantly prideful because they think that they're something or they could be stuck in insecurity and hate what they see in the mirror. But either way, when you look at yourself more than you look at God, you're prideful. So we all, whether you land on one side or the other on the spectrum, we all have a tendency to make more of ourselves than we actually are. And the answer is humility. And it will come naturally to no one and it will, seem, it will seem unnatural to a lot of people who come across confident. And I just want to add this into this today. I was at dinner with my wife last night celebrating eight years of marriage, by the way. I'm an expert now. Yeah, snaps. I love it. It's great. Eight years. I'll, you know, this talk works great as marriage advice. The best way you can go about a healthy marriage is not to try to one-up the other person and get what you want out of the relationship, but bow lower. And if you're competing against each other to outserve one another, you'll have the healthiest marriage on the planet. That's free too. And so, along with your Caesar salad that you're gonna have at lunch today. But I was talking to her, I was talking to her last night, and she's like, I'm so glad you're preaching on humility. And I was like, really? You know I hate talking about humility. Because I grew up, I became a Christian at 13 years old, and I was very outspoken about my faith. This might come as a shock to you, but I was the most loud and flamboyant person in every single friend group I was a part of as a teenager. And a lot of people like, championed me and were like, man, we're so proud of what you're doing in your faith. But the most common advice I got from friends, family members, and spiritual leaders was that I needed to humble myself. And part of that is because I think we see humility as the opposite of confidence. It's not, it's the opposite of pride. Being humble is not seeing yourself in a low way. Being humble is seeing yourself the correct way as God sees you. So if you see a confident person, don't assume that they're prideful. Humble people are confident people. She was like, I'm so glad you're teaching on this because it's been something that God has just reframed in your life over time. Yes, you struggled with pride. You still struggle with pride. But while she was dating me, literally people told her not to date me because I was so prideful and arrogant would have been the biggest mistake of your life by the way let me just add that on that wasn't prideful um maybe a little bit but I like I got so annoyed by that because I was like because I'm loud because I'm like a little bit more confident than the average person you think that's you think humility you see we think humility is like sitting in the background and like no please don't call on me please don't notice me oh humility is when you get complimented and go no I'm not good at that and I'm not that, that's humility no that's 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 called false humility That's fake, and you're only doing that because you want the extra validation they'll give you when you deny the compliment. And so real humility, real humility, this is huge, is not a character trait that you can work on. Real humility is the byproduct of being close to Jesus. Remember the the character word of the week in elementary school? Hey, this week we're working on dependability. This week we're working on integrity. This week we're working on humility. And I can tell you when you leave here, hey, go work, on, go work on your humility. Go act humble. That is not what Scripture teaches. You're not supposed to act humble. It's not something you can work on. You're supposed to be humble. It's a state. It's a result. And the pathway to humility is not making less of yourself. The pathway to humility is making more of Jesus. And the byproduct of a glimpse of God is always humility. In other words, how do I get humble every day? How do I cultivate humility every day? Do I wake up in the morning and go, no, don't think about yourself? No, 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 that's religion. Relationship is this, get close enough to Jesus where you feel so small but also so valued. It'll fill you up and it'll empty you. So you get, you get close enough to Jesus and you'll go, oh my gosh, I'm so small, so insignificant, so needy, so dependent, and he's like, yes, you are. Humble. And I died for you anyway. That's that's all the validation I need. Now I can be myself. And I got nothing to prove to my siblings. I got nothing to prove to the people I work with. I got nothing nothing to earn. Because I got nothing at the foot of the cross. I feel valued. I feel loved. But now I'm just ready to pour it out. Because I got myself in a state to receive my value from the one source that truly gives it. This is less about your one-on-one time with God. It's more about your relationships with other people, but the two go hand in hand. The people closest to you need you closest to Jesus. If you're around people who you talked to at the beginning of this sermon, and you said, this sermon is about us, you know the best thing you can give to them every day is your own proximity to Jesus. If you're close to Jesus, you'll be ready to serve them. And as soon as you and I develop relationships with God where it's not a quiet time. It's, I, would, I would say I'm ready to stop the term quiet time and ready to start calling it glimpse of God. If you, can just get, if you can just get a little glimpse of God, if you can just get a little truth from Scripture, if you can just get a little revelation of who he is, a glimpse of God always results in humility. Read the Bible. When somebody gets a fresh revelation of who God is, they walk away going, I had no business in that room and what I saw was so awesome read Isaiah 6. And so now humility and honor are ready to go hand in hand because I've I've gotten alone with God long enough for him to humble me, but I know how valued I am and I'm ready to pour out my life as an offering so God can bless me and use me and so that people would know who Jesus is. This is what Christians are supposed to be doing. We're not supposed to be in the world system. Now we've created Christian versions of the world system where we'll compete the same way the world does but just within a Christian context. If you're going into ministry full-time with your life, you need to hear what I am saying. There is a toxic, a toxic lie going out in modern Christianity right now that says more influence equals more value. You will hear that. You will watch famous Christians gravitate toward people who have more of a following and more of a capacity to grow their ministry and they'll guise it as spirituality it's not it's a it's a changed form of the same thing the world is doing do you know what equals value for god breath if someone's breathing they matter and if someone walks into our church and they got nothing to give, if someone walks into that church, into our church and they have a mental disability, it doesn't even allow them to process what I am saying. If we got people that the whole world looks at and goes, they're not valuable, they don't really matter, they will matter here. You're not going to matter because you got a certain amount of followers on Instagram and you can grow our church. I don't care. You matter because you're breathing and God loves you. So don't take a Christian version of this worldly lie that says, ooh, Influence matters, and having all these followers matters. Stop it. God is the one who exalts. It's our job to stay humble and value and love people. That's number one. Now you can check out if you need to, but I feel like I've got you with me. Number two, celebrate others often. Celebrate others often. The easiest way to retrain your heart from comparison and competition to humility and gratitude is to celebrate it when people are exalted. And I don't mean some kind of fake, like, oh, I'm so happy for you. You got the promotion that I deserved. I'm so happy for you. We've been trying to have a baby for three years, and you just one try, and you love telling everybody that, oh, it's just crazy. one try. And, and, and some couples in this room, you're like, yes, I feel that way often. Um, and and uh, no, I mean, uh, yeah, I'm so happy for you, and I'll send you the text. and send you, but I'm, uh, no, I'm not talking about faking it. I'm talking about really getting your heart into a position where you look forward to the opportunity to validate other people. I like the word celebrate than the, better than the word serve because serving has this uh, thought that you're giving like, something away, like you're like, oh, I gotta serve. Celebrating is like, oh, I was created to do this. I believe Jesus celebrated the disciples by washing their feet. I believe he celebrated other people by humbling himself. And I believe that Christians are so good at rallying with compassion when someone has been humiliated and so bad at rallying to celebrate when someone has been exalted. You find someone whose life is falling apart, just got a divorce, just got a bad diagnosis, just got bad things happen to their finances, you'll find a Christian close by with a lot of compassion and a lot of food. I got feed you, let's rally around you. And part of that's good. But part of that is motivated by our own internal increase in value by how bad things are going for them. Oh, let me, let me show you some compassion because your life is in a bad place and I'm just glad mine's not. But then, but then notice what happens when a Christian gets exalted. Like, loads of influence, loads of resources, kids doing awesome, kids getting degrees that your kids would dream about, that you would dream about, like stuff happening to someone's life and it's just, it's just amazing, you'll find crickets all around them. Christians are not lining up at the door to go, let's celebrate that you're winning. Let's celebrate that God's exalting you. Let's celebrate that you've been lifted up. I felt this in my own life repeatedly. A couple months ago, this was so, this was so depressing. A couple of, it was awesome, but it was depressing. A couple months ago, I got, a, I got a letter in the mail from a preacher that I grew up fangirling over. I mean, read all of his books. If I said his name right now, you'd freak out. Like, it was like, he and he's like, hey, I watched one of your sermons. I was like, what? This is amazing. I got this letter, and I brought it home, and I showed Courtney, and I was like, can you believe this? Because she used fangirling over him too. I'm like, this is awesome. And then it was so sad. Because I was like, I can't, I can't tell anybody else about this. Like I was literally going down a list and I thought of one couple in our church that also fangirl over him. And I was like, I'll tell them, but I, I can't send this to my other friends. their pastors. I can't, because we don't celebrate well. All that would look like is a play to show how great I am and all that would do to them is make them go. And I don't blame them. I would do the same thing. You see, we're like this. You see how miserable we are? I was having lunch the other day with a dad in our church who literally, it was like his 11th or 12th promotion. And I didn't even know he could go any higher in his company. And he got another one, a big one. And I was like, that's amazing. And I asked him and his wife, I said, how are you guys celebrating that? He looked at me like I just said the dumbest thing in the world. He was like, we've, we've never celebrated any of my career. I've never had anybody ask that before. I never thought to to stop and do that. like I don't wanna make other people celebrate my wins. So guys, do you know what makes Christianity stand out in the world? That we already have so much internal fullness that we have the freedom to actually honor people who are being exalted by God. We can throw parties for people. We can be excited about life. We're the most freed up group in the world because we have nothing to lose and nothing to gain. We've gained everything. And if you're full of that internal fullness, do you know how much the world's gonna look at our community celebrating one another instead of climbing the ladder? What if our Instagram feeds were more about honoring other people than honoring ourselves? What if the stories of our lives became more aimed at others, others, others? Because I'm so internally full from who Jesus is to me that I got a lot to give away. And oh, know this, when you give it away, God's ready to bless you with more. This is real Christianity. So I wanna be a group of people that actually celebrates others often. And the last thing I'll say about this one, when somebody gets exalted in life, you need to be very careful of the bitterness that grows in your heart because a lot of times they're being exalted for humility that you have not seen and know nothing about. Make all these judgments about people who have been exalted to a certain status, to a certain level. You don't know the price that they paid to get there. Maybe you would have never paid that price. It's so easy to see someone when they're exalted and think it came cheap, but everything great comes at a cost. Another famous pastor I fangirled over, I was talking to him at, at, in the middle of this venue, 60,000 seats that were about to be full to hear this guy preach. 60,000, and he's standing in the middle of the venue, a group of pastors, but he looks right at me, and he says, do you want this? Do you want this? And I'm like, oh, I'm I was 27, just started a church. I was like, this, yeah, I mean, yeah. I I would love to have 60,000 people who want to hear me preach. That would be awesome. And he looked right at me and said, pay the price. Nothing, nothing that is considered great comes at a cheap cost. And all of a sudden, my mind shifted from, yeah, I'd love to have this guy. Why'd you do it for him? Why don't you do it for me? My mind shifted to looking in the guy's eyes and seeing, oh my gosh, you have paid a price to stand where you stand today. And you paid a price that I don't even know. I don't even know if I'm willing to pay what you paid. Because I've seen the criticism that you've received. And I've seen in your own life the tragedy. And I don't, I start to back away and go, you, some of you don't, cannot handle the blessing that others have had put on their lives. And you don't know that because all you see is their exaltation, you don't see their humility. So next time you find that bitterness rising up, maybe just let it go through your mind for one second. God's exalting them because they've been humble. Or they're exalting themselves and God's gonna humble them soon. And you do not have to humble them. God will take care of that in his own time. He's got plenty of it, by the way. That's two. On to number three, and I promise I'm done. In your relationships. Is this good? Is this helping? Cultivate humility daily. Celebrate others often. Number three, choose gratitude always. Choose gratitude always. A thankful heart is the most powerful weapon against comparison. The reason why we compare for value is because we're not happy with the one handful that we do have. We have to look at the other handful that we could have if we rose above another. And all that breeds is discontentment. All that breeds is more anger. All that breeds is more emptiness and more effort to achieve what you could have from what's already been given to you. How much more can God possibly give you? If you are in this room, we need to have a fresh vision of the cross daily in order to be grateful. If y'all could stay with me for just one second, I I feel strongly that what's about to go out from this stage is so clearly what somebody needs. If you're here and you struggle with comparing your value to other people, I believe the answer is the answer Paul gives in Philippians 2, the cross of Jesus. And maybe no one's ever stood up for you in your life. I, I felt strongly that there was a man in their 40s at our church. It could be at the last gathering. It could be in this one who like you never had any validation from your parents, ever. And in your entire life, it feels like no one's ever stood up for you to exalt you. No, one, no one's ever rallied around your thing. And the answer today is not more people who owe you something. The answer today is the foot of the cross where Jesus stood for you. Did you know that on a cross, the way that you die is not necessarily from the loss of blood. It's from the loss of oxygen. Because when those nails are pinning you up against the wood, you can't get high enough to draw up your next breath without standing on the very nail that's going through both of your legs. And I know it's graphic and gruesome, but we need to see it to feel our value. Jesus stayed alive on the cross for six hours by standing on a nail for each breath that he took. If no one's ever stood up for you, How much more value do you need than the savior of the world with arms stretched wide going, you're worth this? Felt strongly about the man in his 40s. I feel strongly about some college and high school girls in our church who are addicted to the value that they get from dressing and posting a certain way. Addicted to that quick hit dopamine in their brain from people going, so hot, so beautiful, whatever the comment is. You know it's not working. You know you're empty. It's not because you haven't got enough value from those guys, it's because you haven't looked at the cross enough to receive your value. And when you see him standing there, how can you not stand in awe and go, if I'm worth that to him, I don't need it from him and I don't need it from them. And ultimately what you see on the cross is a picture of two beams humility and honor. Jesus, humbling himself, arms spread wide. Jesus, name above every name, highly exalted. Every tongue will confess, every knee will bow. That's the cross, that's the story of Christianity. Where does my story join in with that? At the foot of the cross. Unworthy, dependent, needy. At the end of the day, Christianity is different from every other world religion because Christianity is about humility. So when we get up in front of people and we say Jesus is the only way, we sound prideful. But it's actually humble because every other world religion claims that they can find their way to God. God is at the top of a mountain and when you have multiple different paths to get to him. So if it's Buddhism for you, great. If it's Hinduism for you, great. If it's Islam for you, if it's atheism for you, whatever it is for you, you just find your way up there. I don't know how it would be atheism, but you just find your way and you'll get to God. That's prideful. That means humans can get to God. You want to know why Christianity is about humility? Christianity says cancel the whole deal. No one's making it up the mountain. No one's getting up there. Christianity says God came down the mountain. God came down the ladder. God came to us. And so the only way to respond to that is I don't have what it takes. I don't have enough. But you valued me. And if you value me that much, I don't need it from everybody else. And if you're here today and you've never accepted that free gift, today is your day. You can do it. We can do it by celebrating communion. We're going to get a view of the cross by celebrating the Lord's Supper. The night before Jesus died, he held up the cup of wine and he said, this is my blood. He held up the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. And if you're going to be distributing communion, you can go ahead and get ready to do that because I want us to have enough time to do this in the service. We just want to respond by looking at the cross and give you a tangible, physical reminder of that that Jesus instructed us to give. So what's gonna happen is some volunteers are gonna pass a tray down your aisle. If you're not a believer in Jesus yet, just pass it to the next person. But if you are, we want you to grab two cups. One has the juice in it and one has the bread beneath that. And we wanna give you an opportunity to humble yourself before God in this space today by remembering the cross. If y'all wanna get into position, let me pray. Father God, I thank you for this moment. In Jesus' name, I pray that we would walk away never the same, that our relationships would be changed forever by our relationship with you, that your honor over our lives would impact everything about where we go and what we do from here. God, remind us of the cross. Bring us back to where we belong. We love you. We're so grateful for the opportunity that we get to share in this moment. Fill up this space with your presence in Jesus' name.